0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Albert Einstein was reputed to have said, when asked about the direct implications of his work, if we knew exactly where things were going, it wouldn't be called research. Like most Einstein quotes, it's far from certain that he actually said that, but it's certainly the sort of thing he could have said. When I asked Nobel laureate Tony Leggett to speculate on future directions in physics, he expressed a similar sentiment by quoting Louis Armstrong, who, when he was asked about the future of jazz, replied, Man, if I knew where jazz was going, I'd be there already. Despite all of that, however, most people certainly don't associate the joyous, full-throttled quest for the unknown as a characteristic description of the professional scientist. So if you were one of those people who finds the expression scientific adventure to verge precipitously close to the oxymoronic, this riveting tale of the pursuit of natural quasi-crystals by Princeton University physicist Paul Steinhardt is sure to set you straight.
1: Quasicrystals are a form of matter, a new form of matter, a new phase of matter, Uh, which um, violates the uh, rules of symmetry that we thought all solids had to obey. Uh, So when atoms come together and molecules come together to form a solid, they arrange themselves in some sort of three-dimensional configuration. They pack together. Um, And before the discovery of quasicrystals, we knew of two general kinds of organization. One was random, like if you take uh, a liquid and you freeze it very rapidly, it will freeze into a random arrangement of atoms or molecules. Um, ordinary glass is a little bit more complicated. It's uh, uh, a frozen network. The atoms are, are bonded in a kind of network, but into a random arrangement, which is twisted and turned within it, and sometimes has vacancies and holes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other kind of arrangement, which is uh, which is which we find often aesthetically pleasing, is the crystal arrangement. That's the lowest energy arrangement, we thought, uh, for at, from atoms and molecules. And in, in crystals, um, the, the atoms and molecules arrange themselves like building blocks in a child's toy. Uh, a, certain arrangement would re- a, a building block would represent a certain arrangement of atoms, and then the way the solid is built up is just by repeating that arrangement over and over and over again. So sometimes the building block is just one atom, let's say in a copper metal or something like that. Sometimes, the arrangement can be quite complicated, like in DNA, but it still has this property that it repeats over and over and over again. So in some ways, it's a little bit like um, uh, uh, a tiling in two dimensions. If you were trying to tile your floor or tile your bathroom or something like that, um, and you're only using a single-type tile, you want to find a single-type tile which will fill the entire plane in that case, in two dimensions. So what we learned um, about 200 years ago is that there are strict rules about what symmetries or what forms you can have. Actually, we discovered it long before there, then empirically, probably at least as far back as the ancient Egyptians. They, really? already, they already explored in their patterns all the um, known patterns. But in terms of mathematics, we didn't understand it until sort of beginning, you know, in the nineteenth century, you
0: didn't begin to categorize it, but they empirically they were trying all sorts of
1: different patterns in other. Yeah, you tried it, yeah, it? yeah. So, so humans have been very interested in pattern making, whether it's for walls, for rugs, for surfaces, and so just empirically we've explored them, and we know we you know we've known what the allowed patterns were, at least we thought we did, and then um, so so let's imagine we're doing that. We're going to tile our bathroom floor, and we're going to use identical tiles, and you want to decide what patterns you can make. Uh, You could imagine doing it with squares, you could imagine doing it with triangles, you could imagine doing it with rectangles, with parallelograms, with uh, hexagons. You'd think the list would go on and on, but actually that's the end of the list. Mm. Uh, You can't do it with any other regular shape. You try to tile your bathroom floor with pentagons and you'll be pretty upset because you'll find out that there's regions that can't be filled in with those pentagons, there'd be holes. You've probably seen patterns with octagons that you've walked across, but if you think about it carefully, it's not just octagons. It's octagons with little squares in the corners, and what that really is is a square pattern in which you've inscribed an octagon inside each one. So you sort of, so we do various things because we get bored with this small set of patterns. Humans have figured out all kinds of ways of hiding that order and symmetry. Uh, Martin Escher was, an, you know, was a marvel at doing that kind of thing in his drawings, but still. There's this strict restriction, we thought, for patterns and for matter. Uh, quasi-crystals shatter that uh, picture because they have symmetries which are forbidden, They're not on that list. They can have the symmetry of a pentagon or or, or sevenfold or 11-fold uh, uh, symmetry and similarly forbidden symmetries in higher dimensions. And um, uh, And that's because they introduce one new element into the story, which opens up the symmetry possibilities. Uh, whereas crystals, the atoms and molecules repeat at a single frequency, mm-hmm. for um, for quasicrystals, they repeat at two or more frequencies, where the ratio of the frequencies is irrational, not expressible as a ratio of integers. So what we call in sound a disharmony. Mm-hmm. So if um, if we... If you heard a sound which was a combination of two tones which were disharmonic, your first reaction would be probably that that's noise. Uh, But if you took its Fourier transform, if you analyzed its tones, you'd actually find it's not noise. Noise would have a broad spectrum of frequencies. This really would just be two tones, but they happen to be in disharmony. So it's actually a very special ordered sound. It's just one that your ear has trouble interpreting and distinguishing from noise. And actually, quasicrystal patterns have that visual feel to them as well. When you look at them, your eye, depending upon how you view them, uh, you might first say, oh, I'm looking at some kind of ordered pattern, and then you try to figure out what's going to happen in that pattern next, and you'd find, oh, it's kind of unpredictable, so maybe it's random. So our, we cannot, humans cannot, you know, sort of instantaneously without any training, recognize uh, a, a quasicrystal from something which is random. So it's hidden. To the point that um, unless you know how to analyze it properly, you wouldn't, realize. you wouldn't realize what you had. The idea of quasicrystals was first introduced by my student, Dove Levine and I, as a way to break the symmetry rules. We were interested in making patterns. We were interested in making solids, which would violate the usual rules of crystallography.
0: When was this? When, when so this was uh, beginning 1981. How did you come to start thinking about this? I mean, how...
1: Uh, Well, like in most of my stories about science, it's going to be a story of lots of twists and turns, Okay. Uh, but it begins, uh, if you go way back, it probably begins when I was a kid and I began to read about group theory and crystallography, Uh, and I just thought it was an amazing thing that with pure mathematics, you could predict the shapes of crystals, all the loud shapes of crystals. It actually is one of the, it's considered one of the great triumphs of um, theoretical physics that you... That you could completely categorize all the possible shapes just by doing a mathematical calculation having to do with symmetries and the mathematical properties of symmetries. So I was just really struck by that and interested in pattern making and analyzing patterns and something I've just been forever, even today, I'm interested in. If you take me to a room someplace, there's some pattern. going to be looking at it and for whatever reason, uh, you know, trying to analyze it.
0: Cool. So you were thinking about pushing the boundaries of that. It was, was this well, right it's a not? little bit more complicated than that. So, so that was sort of, you know, in the back of the mind. Then,
1: you know, when, uh, uh, when I was um, uh, an undergraduate at Caltech, I was um, going through this process of trying to figure out what I wanted to do in, in my life and deciding it was physics, but not knowing what area of physics. One of the summers I spent in a, in a summer program at Yale University, Uh, being introduced to condensed matter physics, the physics of solids. And um, in particular, I was uh, tasked with trying to make what at the time was the first computer model of um, amorphous silicon. Mm -hmm. So people had made uh, physical models of it that were supposed to represent the random network arrangement of silicon. So if you make crystalline silicon like you have in most your, in many of your uh, transistors, that makes a beautiful, what we call, diamond lattice of hexagons. If you cool the silicon rapidly, mm-hmm. it forms amorphous silicon in which, instead of getting all six-fold rings, you sometimes have five-fold and seven-fold and forms a kind of twisted, complicated network. And people have made physical models, but my, my summer job was to uh, understand um, the properties of the, uh, to try to build a computer model that we could then rela- um, study and relax and measure lots of properties of. And, so, and I just found it fascinating that if you make it crystalline, we understand it completely, and if you make it non-crystalline, mm-hmm. we don't really understand it very well at all. And actually, we don't really completely understand it today. Still have some, you know, a, some open, significant open issues about how to properly calculate cal- uh, um, to uh, properly uh, calculate it, Uh, how to properly understand it. Um, Okay, so then zoom forward a few years and uh, uh, I was invited to IBM research to uh, now analyze not silicon but amorphous metals. So amorphous metals are a little bit different. Uh, They don't form a network. The metals pack like spheres. And so it's like throwing a bunch of marbles together randomly and asking, what properties they have, and, and what's the right way to characterize their arrangement? Is it ran, truly random, or is there some hidden order in there? Mm. And um, and in working with a colleague, I was then a, a few years later a postdoc, uh, working with uh, uh, David Nelson, who's a, a, a condensed matter physicist at Harvard, um, and he had idea had the idea that if you were to study simulations of these amorphous metals on uh, carefully, you'd find that there was a hidden kind of way called cubatic order. That if I looked at the two nearest neighbor atoms and how the link between the the, 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 the li- line segment between them, and I looked at another pair, that although there was some degree of randomness, on average they tend to be aligned along a cube. So they're not positioned cubically, but they're just the alignment has a kind of cubic sense to it. On so, average,
0: so statistically, at some, at stati- some level. in
1: some statistical measure, right? So. So uh, at that time, I actually, I think, had the world's largest simulation of amorphous metals, PIPA uh, simulation. So I was, you know, I was, had the right tool for the job. So we began to analyze the simulations, and we didn't find this cub- cubatic order, but we found something else instead. We found icosahedral order. So that's the symmetry of a soccer ball rather than the symmetry of a cube. Uh, that's to say the symmetry, uh, or the symmetry of this object. This is, this is what an icosahedron is. It's a, a geometrical object, one of the five platonic solids. Right. It consists, it's called an icosahedron because icosa means 20. So it has 20 hedron faces, in this case 20 triangular faces, all identical. All the vertices are identical. All the links are identical. Um, so this was the local symmetry in the sense that a link over here would be linked, you know, sort of an average oriented similarly to a link over here, to a link over here, maybe in this direction. Uh, but not infinite range icosahedral order over a fairly substantial size of the computer simulation. so how, but how, eventually how it eventually appear about, about ten about ten interatomic spacings would begin to okay. kind of peter out, so it was kind of a local local degree of icosahedrality, but not clear you know um, not uh, which was unexpected to have that degree of order but that, um I think at least David's view, that was kind of the end of the story. That's the best you could do. And
0: did it exist throughout the whole, the whole space, the whole region, or were there certain pockets of, of, of that? Stuff? Was uh, it
1: uniform? No, it was uniform. So the sample was uniform. Okay. So You could look at sub-samples. You could make different simulations. You could repeat the process. Mm-hmm. So it, it, was, you know, it was a repeatable result. and still remains you know, an, an idea that people use today. Um, but,
0: um, but for him, that was the end of the story.
1: And that was the, yeah, that's the end of the story. Now, I, uh, the thing is that the, when we had done these simulations, we were using simulations which uh, had just a single type of atom in them. And I was interested in, uh, well, could one get this icosahedral to go a little bit further? Let's say we had two types of atoms, because actually real amorphous metals, for example, often have two or three types of atoms in them, and maybe that would enable a more extensive degree of icosahedrality. Now, most sane people would have said, uh, yeah, but you're only going to get a little bit more because this is one of the most famous forbidden symmetries for solids. This is, the costahedron has, you know, five-fold symmetry axes along every pair of vertices. It has six of them. It's the most famous forbidden symmetry for solids. You used to open up, the, at that time, any solid-state physics textbook, and usually on, you know, elementary textbook on... Within the first chapter, there'd be a picture of an icosahedron <laughs> explaining that you will never get this symmetry for a solid. So, um, but uh, since I was uh, a little bit um, uh, uh, more naive, I wanted to know, well, how do we really know that? Uh, I, I agree that it couldn't be a crystal, but of course that wasn't what we were making in our simulations. We were, it wasn't crystalline. On the other hand, it had this long-range icosahedral, um, intermediate, I'll call it intermediate-range icosahedral order. Who says that couldn't be extended, and what would that look like, and how would it be possible? And then uh, shortly after that, I moved to the University of Pennsylvania, and Doug Levine joined me as a student. And uh, he foolishly decided to join the project, even though I told him this is a really impossible project, not likely to lead anywhere. But uh, if you want to join this crazy project, and you insist, which he did, uh, okay, let's get started. So we tried to build icosahedral things. So the so you say so we began to build aicosahedra and aicosahedra a aicosahedra and began to see what happens. What how do you exactly run into trouble? Um, and at some point, a Dove brought in a Scientific American article uh, with a picture on the cover of a Penrose tiling, and it said, "Well, maybe we should be thinking about this." And uh, and the reason why it was interesting was because it was a non-period uh, when uh, so Penrose's tiling mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, was supposed to be is a non-periodic tiling of just two tile shapes and and um, if you look at the pattern it has little arrange- local arrangements which look fivefold. So it suggests a kind of five-fold symmetry, which would be crystallographically forbidden, although it wasn't proven at the time. It wasn't clear, at, the, at least it wasn't clear you know, in, in what was written at the time exactly what it was. It was so Penrose was trying to make something non-periodic, but it wasn't, which tells us what it isn't, but it didn't say what it is, or what's the secret behind it. Um, and so that's what we got interested, and we wanted to understand it better. Uh, first of all, is it really fivefold symmetric? Yeah, we showed eventually it actually has. If you look at every link in the system, it always every link in the system, every edge of the tile is oriented along one of the edges of a pentagon, and each one each direction is represented equally. So that means it really does have a statistical average mm-hmm. fivefold symmetry. Right. Um, then we tried to understand well. Okay, so if it's not periodic, is it anything else? And uh, what we discovered is. Actually, it's quite special. You have these two different tiles. Each one repeats with a different average frequency, where the ratio of those frequencies is irrational number. So it is what I call quasi-periodic. Uh, so the secret, apparently, for getting that symmetry, which was forbidden, was the fact that it was quasi-periodic rather than periodic. The 200-year-old theorems of crystallography always said, you know, if you have a crystal where things are periodic, then here's the symmetries allowed and people had only imagined one other possibility before that random and now we were imagining this two-tone like possibility and then suddenly you get new symmetries. Mm -hmm. In fact, you discover that all the symmetries that we thought were forbidden can now be achieved, can now be reached with quasi-periodicity. Penrose's um, tiling had another feature which was very important which wasn't simply that it could be made non-periodic but if you label the tiles appropriately, or if you put um, jigsaw puzzles like holes and hooks into each one, you'd have, you could have two types which could only fit together to form the Penrose tiling, which he called non-periodic, but now we would say is quasi-periodic or quasi-crystalline. So could we do that for, for the acosahedral case? Hmm. It's not clear that you can do that. Uh, and it's, um, uh, but it, would be, it was important to us because what it represented to us was that that meant it wasn't just possible, but you could even imagine atomic interactions which would mimic or have the same effect as those little jigsaw puzzle pieces, you know, preferring some arrangements over others, in which case the quasicrystal would be energetically preferred, maybe even more preferred than a crystal. And... Um, So we spent some time trying to do that, uh, and we thought thought it was going to be a simple thing to do, but it turned out to actually be quite a complicated thing to do. And in the end, we found a couple of schemes. I found a scheme for doing it with Dove and then another student, John Sokolar, um, with whom we found an even, well, this is a scheme I like, a scheme I like better for, um, because it has yet other properties that are interesting.
0: So these are fascinating models, but yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, he's playing with all these mathematical games right. and these potential. That's, that's interesting. But does it have anything to do with anything in the real world whatsoever? Right. So that's the question we wanted
1: to know. So, so, we, had the, so we now had the idea that you, that you could have forbidden symmetries in principle. You could even force them through, in this case, Lego-like interactions. But if you can do it for Lego-like interactions... In principle, there might exist real materials that would have them. Um, We'd even computed um, what we call the diffraction pattern from these materials because uh, we wanted to know, in the laboratory, if you ever were to find such a material, how would you ever know that you had it? Um, Well, we knew for crystals, um, you know, back to von Laue and the Braggs uh, in the 1920s, that a way of determining the structure of a crystal is to scatter X-rays or electrons or neutrons through it, they go through the channels of the material. They come out the other end, and they interfere with one another, much the way that light interferes with itself as it goes through a set of slits, producing a pattern which we call a diffraction pattern. And for crystals, that pattern is very distinctive. It's a lattice of pinpoints. Uh, the pinpoints, the fact that they're pinpoints, is because the structure is periodic, and the lattice has a symmetry, which is this tells you the symmetry. Um, if you were to look along the atomic arrangement along that direction, what symmetry you'd be viewing um, for the arrangement, which might be different in different directions. Um, and then there'd be a, a basic spacing between them, and that basic spacing would have to do with the size of the repeating unit. And we use this, these basic rules of diffraction to have solved the atomic structure of many, many, many materials, uh, both... Um, Minerals, uh, synthetic materials, biologic materials, DNA. So this is like standard practice. Um, If you had something which the atoms were randomly arranged, you don't get pinpoints at all. You just get a diffuse cloud of 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 interference or pattern coming out the other end. It's just diffuse and symmetrical and and round, if you like. Um, For the um, quasi-crystal, what we found is, well, if you have a structure which is quasi-periodic. That means it's really made up of periodic elements, each of which would produce pinpoint diffraction. So you're going to get pinpoint diffraction. But it's going to have symmetries, which symmetry of the symmetry of the lattice of pinpoints is going to be different, first of all, because it's going to be, have a symmetry, which is not one of the symmetries you were supposed to have. For example, if you were to do it for the Penrose tiling, you would get something with a symmetry of a, a it's just tenfold which is one of the forbidden symmetries, or if you were to do it for the icosahedral lattice, looking along one of the five-fold symmetry directions, you'd get something similar. So first of all, the the arrangement of the pinpoints, just the symmetry of it, is very different. And then the uh, second thing is, because of the quasi-periodicity, along any direction in your pattern, um, you have, like, uh, these two, uh, instead of having a single fundamental distance between pinpoints, Well, you could say, you could think of it as I begin with two different ones which are rationally related, mm-hmm. plus all combinations of them, nice. plus and minus. If you make a combinations of all plus and minus, you can actually get, you know, between every pair of pinpoints, there should be yet more pinpoints, yet more pinpoints, and more pinpoints. So what you get is not something that looks like a crystal lattice with a basic spacing, but a kind of snowflake pattern, a self-similar pattern of pinpoints. So very distinctive. So we even knew... What to look for when, if you were to find such a material. Now, how do you find such a material? Um, well, by this point, I thought we had gotten far enough along with this idea that um, I would take a leave and try to convince, I, I, I was going to go, take a leave to IBM Research in Yorktown Heights and try to convince people there to try to either fabricate or look for quasicrystals. And I had some ideas on how to look for them. Looking
0: Uh, for them, I get, I mean, how do you fabricate them? So looking for them, you've already done the analysis for this diffraction grating issue. So you have some characteristic signature that you can see.
1: Yeah, so one thing you could do is just do exhaustive search through lots of unusual materials. Right. Hard to do, but you could could do it that way. The other approach you could do is try to fabricate. And the the fabrication idea I had in mind was um, using colloids. So colloids are, materi- are um, you can think of them as materials, or condensed states made, for example, out of little beads in liquid, mm-hmm. but where the beads have are charged, so they have forces between them, and they can arrange themselves in, well, it was known they could arrange themselves in crystal patterns. And I had sort of worked out a scheme for how it might be able to get to work for a quasi-crystal pattern. So, yeah,
0: so how, wait, tell me more about this scheme. I, I, I'm uh, just, I... I know nothing about this stuff. Uh. I just think, how do you move these guys? Uh, <laughs> do do well, that? they have to organize themselves. Right. How do you right, make right, them right, right. organize? Well, whatever, whatever. Right. It is.
1: So you could you could use beads with two different charges on them. So that, yeah. that would induce two different forces, two different characteristic lengths. That was the idea. And then I was I tried to play with um, um, tuning those charges and tuning the the the. Um, the ionization of the fluid they were in to see if we could... Might drive them, missing. using
0: various potentials to drive them right. into this symmetrical right. or... Right, you're
1: pretty limited thing. in what, you can, what degrees of freedom you can play with, so yeah. it's not clear you can do it, and uh, I don't believe anyone's done it today for icosahedral symmetry.
0: Okay, but that—that that I understand was the theoretically what yeah. you were trying that's to... that's
1: what we were trying to do, and there was a group there that worked on colloids, and then cool. there was a group there that was there characterizing... Uh, crystals, so I thought that was a good group to go to. And I had a long historic relationship with IBM. And so I went there on leave. And I was prepared to do that. But shortly after I arrived there, um, um, Dave Nelson, who I'd worked with years before and gotten me started in this whole direction, um, came to visit. He was giving a colloquium at IBM. And he came to my office. He had arranged to meet with me. And... um, and I was really excited because I wanted to show him. He had never seen all the stuff on quasi-crystals we had done. So I was really because we hadn't talked for a few years. I thought this is. I was all prepared to show him all this great
0: stuff. So his interest had just died after this whole uh, this the symmetry that died off after a certain time, and that was it. For
1: him, Actually, right? no. What what he had done is he had developed a theory to explain why the quasicrystal symmetry could never be extended beyond a finite amount. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was interested <laughs> in showing. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with his theory, but it just uh, in, in, in terms of the assumption, given the assumptions, his conclusion is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. It's just that there, it doesn't have to. Turns out it doesn't have to be so. Huh. Uh, he hadn't thought about the. He you know, wasn't think about quasi-periodicity. He had a different geometric view as to why. Uh, so, so his 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 his, um, his theory worked well if you had all identical spheres or all identical atoms. But once you begin to introduce several types, uh, it wasn't clear. You, you, might, you might have guessed it would still apply, but it, it turns out not to. Uh, anyway, so he so so off, came by he came by, and he came by, and he said, uh, uh, and, and I didn't know, uh, I, was, I thought he was coming to hear for me to talk to him, but he said, actually I wanted to show you something. And I said, well, I want to show you something. <laughs> and, and then we sort of dickered a little bit. <clears throat> and he said, and he got to go first. And he pulled out uh, a preprint, and he said, I, I think this is something you might be interested in. Uh, and it was a preprint by a fellow uh, named, uh, four people, uh, Dan Shechtman, Elon Blach, Denis Guadius, and John Kahn, who are working at the National Bureau of Standards, as it was called at that time. And they had found a material which had um, a diffraction pattern, uh, which indicated the title of the thing was something about icosahedral symmetry. It's something which was icosahedral, but they didn't understand what it was. Um, and I thought at first what he was showing was something like what he and I had worked on, something with short-range order. But as I began to read. No, they were talking about something with long-range icosahedral order. And then I flipped the page, and there was the diffraction pattern. And wow, I just about jumped. I think I did probably jump out of my chair. Um, uh, and I knew this diffraction pattern. I don't think I said anything. I just think I just walked over the desk which is about, you know, as far away as the desk is away from here in this room from us and just picked off the table the diffraction pattern I was going to show him <laughs> which is of our, of, our, of the model I just showed you and you know put them next to him and said I think we have the answer to this question. And Dove was visiting cuz I had him come up to uh, cuz I wanted him to meet with David as well cuz we were going to explain to him our idea and and then he got to you know he immediately of course recognized what was going on. I think Dave took a little bit longer to recognize what was going on, but it was a it was that that was kind of like the aha moment where you knew that this idea might have some real might have some reality so it might you know so that by accident someone had discovered such a material, which was you know incredibly exciting
0: so then what did you do right right then did you did you phone phone these guys yeah
1: pretty soon i I phoned people at at Penn where I was at the time uh, because they had know, been supporting all this work in the years that people had thought it was pretty crazy to work on these things. So, you know, this was very abstract stuff uh, to be working in hypothetical forms of matter. So I wanted to let them know, actually, it may be very interesting and people there immediately got to work and trying to reproduce the results in that paper and it made many important contributions in the next months. Uh, and then I also called them up and um, John Kahn came up and we had a session with him and then a few weeks later... Um, uh, then of course we wrote up our results and submitted them and uh, then a few months later there was a sort of kind of a grand presentation at Penn where um, uh, John came up and uh, we presented our theory and they talked about their experiment and that was kind of how it rolled out to begin with um, and, um, and it was a nice beginning but like often happens when Ideas begin and experiments come, then people begin to come in and there begins to be some controversy about, you know, uh, different ideas. So we had an idea of what might explain their material, but other people looking at the same information uh, had competing ideas. What were those ideas? Um, there were two broad categories of ideas. Um, uh, and uh, one was that um, whereas the picture we had was that these were really ordered materials that just quasi-periodic rather than periodic ordered in the sense that they produce pinpoint diffraction Uh, and a competing idea was that they were just a random arrangement of icosahedral clusters distributed spatially with no long range order at all. Mm. Uh, It turns out if you make such an arrangement it makes a a diffraction pattern which looks very similar to Schachmann's. The difference being that because it's disordered, you don't get pinpoints. Wherever you have a pinpoint, you have a kind of little broad spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, it turns out the spots aren't quite in the right place. In uh, uh, I, I should say, I'm sorry. I should for this model, they would be on average in the right place, although they might not be if you just looked at a particular example of it. So and in fact, Schekman's material really wasn't that good. Uh, it, it really it was. It was fair to say that this model explained. The data as well, um, because his pattern really wasn't truly pinpoint, and the spots weren't exactly in the right positions. So, if, if you thought from the, our point of view, we'd say, "Oh, well, what do you expect? The way you made your material is by rapidly cooling it; it should have lots of defects in it, and the defects disorder will, you know, that will, will produce that diffraction effect." Or one could take the point of view: "No, actually, the quasi-crystal picture isn't right." It's inherently a, 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 a random arrangement with no long-range order, so there was that kind of uh, discre- difference between what we call quasi-crystal and icosahedral glass. Glass implying the randomness, and then the third idea was that uh, that Linus Pauling was most interested in promoting, which was actually uh, what do you say? There were the c uh, Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, he had a quote about. Um, uh, there are no quasi-crystals. There are just quasi-people or something like that. Oh, really? Yeah, so he was quite uh, thinking. Uh, he, he thought he had a crystal model that could explain the data just as well. And the reason why you could do it in a crystal model is because the points were quite on, quite on, right, on the right spots in Schectman's material. And if you deviate ever, ever so much, then what you thought were irrational ratios become can be fit well by rational ratios, harmonic ratios that could then give you a crystalline pattern. And so he had the idea that the quasicrystals were really m- what we call multiply-twinned crystals, crystals which would form uh, different grains of them uh, rotated by uh, uh, certain angles with respect to one another to mimic something icosahedral, even though it's inherently crystalline. Right. And it's not a crazy idea. Many materials grow that way. Uh, if you grow gold small particles of gold, they will form an arrangement which will look very much like this icosahedral arrangement. But if you look carefully, what you'll see is that this face, which is a bunch of atoms, and if you look into its interior to the middle, this will form a tetrahedron, which if you look inside of it, all the atoms will be crystally arranged. And then here, crystally arranged, and here, crystally arranged. So it's, it's 20 grains, each of which is a crystalline, but they happen to arrange themselves in this one large configure in this particular nugget. Yeah. We, that, that's, called, that's, that, that's what we call multiply-twin crystal. Two, two guys which are the same but differ by their orientation are called twins, and it's multiply-twin because it's 20, 20 twins over. So it wasn't a crazy
0: idea at all. It was a fairly sensible idea. Um, as you're pointing out all these different structures and all these different patterns, an obvious question is, well, how does this happen to begin with. I mean, maybe that's too difficult to...
1: to that, that's, yeah, that is, well, that is difficult. If you talk, for simple patterns, we have enough, you know, if it's simple, uh, and there's just a few atoms involved, maybe one type or two types of atoms, and it's a very simple arrangement, um, we have pretty good arguments and calculations that can explain why that structure is energetically preferred. Right. And help you distinguish... Why would it be that crystal rather than something random or something else? Um, but for the structures we're talking about, which are complicated, we actually don't have that kind of power in uh, our understanding of materials. Um, is it, we, is for it, example, if you tell me I'm going to mix A, B, and C, three random elements from the periodic table, and I haven't done it before, so I don't know the answer, <clears throat> there's no way I can calculate in advance what arrangement it can make unless you happen to have chosen some particularly simple example. Uh, in general, we don't know how to do that. Um, it's because the atoms can make many, many different... Co- once you have more than one, uh, two or more, you can make many, many different configurations, each of which will have its own energy. And, of course, what you're asking me is which one has the lowest energy. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> There are so many of them. I would have to be able to calculate them all. Then I have to figure out which ones have the lowest energy. If I'd find that the lowest energy ones are very different from one another but Mm -hmm. very tiny differences in energy. So I've got to be really precise in my theoretical calculation to tell which one is, whether this one's lower or this one's lower. Mm -hmm. I better really know my atomic interactions very, very precisely. But the differences in energy are much smaller than my uncertainty in those interactions. So I can't calculate it. So this has just always been a problem in our understanding of materials, and it's why material science has a heavy empirical component uh, uh, sort of trial-and-error component. Um, so, for example, when Shackman found his, what turned out, you know, what, what, this icosahedral uh, material, it's not that he had the idea of making an icosahedral material. He was actually do, involved in a project, uh, which by comparison is rather boring, of um, finding, making many, many aluminum alloys, because aluminum 's a valuable material and, and many uh, materials make uh, it was a contract, uh, a research grant to make many many aluminum materials, then study it in the electron microscope, figure out what's, which crystal pattern they correspond to, and then make a catalog of such things hmm. and he wasn 't the materials maker he was the guy whose job was to look in the electron microscope, measure the diffraction pattern, and record what what the what the pattern was and so you know I imagine. Every few days someone's bringing him such a material and one day they bring him something which produces this pattern <laughs> and, 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 and he had the, uh, 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 the insight to stop and realize he had something really special. Most crystallographers who would have seen that pattern would have discounted it, assuming that someone like my, uh, a model like Linus Pauling's, this multiple twinning model, was correct. This happens, as I, said, as I said, often enough in materials that it wouldn't be unusual if it were multiple twinning. Right. And it would produce patterns which have mock symmetries, which would give you the impression if, at first glance that they are have a symmetry which is forbidden. But if you narrowed your beam, let's say, take, take the example we're talking about here. So instead of taking diffraction from this entire sample, suppose I only diff- took it from one of these elements, I would suddenly see what was my complex pattern simplified to that of a single crystal. I'd say, ah, and I'd see it again here, and I'd see it again here. So from that, I could figure out, that's how you figure out that it's multiply twinned. That's a lot of work, a lot of extra work of alignment and work. And so most crystallographers would have said, I'll go on to the next sample and find one that isn't multiply twinned. So his insight was to realize that, um, and, and and I think it's because he actually didn't Know that much about multiple twinning himself. Uh, it had to be pointed out to him afterwards that that was the likely culprit.
0: Because otherwise, he would have just said, "Oh, that that's what it is." He would have just discounted.
1: Yeah. Right. In fact, many colleagues there, as I understand it, I don't, you know, and I first discounted and said, "Oh, there's more tests that you have to do before you convince yourself you have something unique." So, even though he first saw the material, I think in 1982, it took two years before the case was strong enough that they felt that they could publish the paper. I see.
0: Does this mean also? So, I want to get to the how people eventually acknowledge this and yeah. recognize this and the implications. Yeah. But it seems like um, there's a likelihood that that means that, that at least at some point in the past, they could very well have been detecting these things and have just thrown them out thinking that this was multiple.
1: Yeah, we think that's something. likely the case. So, you know, there are papers um, going back to the 1930s where the phase diagram of, um, of alloys. Uh, is shown, and there's a phase in there which has a label which sits where the ca- where the quasi-crystal should be, mm. and um, and probably just wasn't recognized as being uh, something
0: unique. So uh, yeah. so there were th- so let's get back to your story. Yeah. There were three competing yeah. explanations. Three
1: competing explanations for a number of years, and uh, the quasi-crystal picture at the time um, was disfavored, was beginning to become disfavored at first uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, the, um, the data, uh, we, we weren't able to make, uh, by this point after the first example, people began to find other examples, but they, all of them shared the problem that they weren't giving pinpoint to fraction of the spots and they weren't in quite in the right positions. Um, they all had, also had the common property that they were not stable. Uh, that is to say, if you cooled those materials slowly, they'd crystallize. But if you cooled them rapidly enough, they would form this structure. So it seemed to either be that the, it was consistent with the icosahedral glass picture or um, that it was consistent with the icosahedral glass picture. The multiply twin picture, although Pauling got a lot of attention for it, because he's Linus Pauling, and has, you know, deserved that reputation. That one didn't, didn't convince many people because they could do this backup experiment, which I described, which when they did it, they didn't find the, the characteristic signature of multiple twinning.
0: So this is looking at the... Looking at the individual,
1: but looking at the individual the pieces. The, yeah. but what would what happen is when people would look at the quasicrystal picture, when you put those units together that I showed you, they produce a pattern that looks something like this, a very beautiful pattern, but also a very complex pattern. So the intuition was nature's not going to make complex patterns. It'd be much easier to make random icosidral clusters that just randomly aggregate. Now, it can't be totally random. You wouldn't get this nice pattern. It wouldn't need anything close to, to um, Shacklin's pattern. They have to align relative to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and So that's not so simple either, but that was thought to, at first to be simpler and sufficient to describe the data compared to this pattern, yeah. to this kind of structure. So it took uh, another another issue um, had to do going back to the Penrose tiles. Uh, so if I give you a pile of Penrose tiles, um, you know because of what Penrose showed, and if I follow his rules for how to join them edge to edge, that there's only that I'll, I'm forced to make a quasi-crystal pattern. On the other hand, uh, if I actually give you that job to do and you start building your pattern, you'll actually find it's actually rather hard to make the pattern. The reason will be is you'll be going merrily along, maybe 10 10 units or 20 units, and suddenly you'll find something that can't Mm. be continued. Uh, You've made a mistake. So you can correct it. You can go, remove some, and then start to make a different choice, and now you'll get past that point, but another 10 tiles, a mistake, and then a mistake again, and a mistake again, and uh, now how, if that if you have that problem, what about the atoms? How do they figure out to make something quasi crystalline? Um, you could have gotten around your problem if you had a map like the, or like you do on a cover of a jigsaw puzzle that shows you what to do. you could have gotten around your problem. But that's cheating because that's using long-range information. Atoms don't walk around with little maps. They don't have heads, but if they had heads, they wouldn't walk around with maps in their heads. So it seems like atoms need long-range interactions in order to know when an atom is attaching over here whether or not to attach over here. And, well, for these materials, for these, you know, for example, the first example is aluminum and manganese. Um, We know those atoms don't have such such long-range interactions. They get shielded by the atoms nearby. So that was a strong argument saying that, in principle, you could never do better than making something like a diso- highly disordered pattern. And then you might as well think of it as an icosahedral glass. So the stock in the quasicrystal picture went down, the stock in the icosahedral picture was going up during those. these are like first few years of the, of the subject. Um, so... Um, Then two interesting things happened. Uh, First of all, on the theoretical front, a group of us sat down with Penrose, literally with Penrose. Charles and asked the question, okay, if we follow Penrose's rules, we understand that we can't go very far with making a mistake, but could we slightly improve those rules so that we could go a little bit further? And it's a little bit like what I was saying about the Acasahedra, and how much further? You know, a little bit further, maybe much further, maybe a factor of 100 further. Maybe we can go out far enough that people would be convinced, at least on that scale, we could do better. So <clears throat> we literally sat down. So we the, uh, the, uh, the, began this project with uh, the same student I made that model with, Josh Sokolar, and uh, George Onoda, who was at IBM, who actually uh, all had this sort of similar notion, can we do better than the Penrose Rules? And uh, Dave Vincenzo. I remember we are sitting down at lunch one day to examine this question, we made a bunch of tiles out of paper, and we began to make a tiling. And every t- what happened is we'd make a mistake, and then we'd look at the mistake and we'd say, "How could we have avoided that mistake by making a lo- just from local information?" Not with long-range information. Right. Uh, we- something happened along the way. Could we have avoided it? Oh yes, I see what it is. You'd write down say, "Whenever this configuration comes up, don't do that." Okay, that local. If that local configuration, don't do that. Then you try that rule. Now you have the Penrose rules, rules plus that rule. You just go again, and now you go a little bit further, but you run into another problem. You stare at it again. You say, "Okay, oh, okay, we should not do this when this happens." You add to your rule set. We kept adding to the rule how set. How many of these
0: things did you have?
1: Uh, enough? Yeah. They were probably about that size, and enough to fill a table that size. But when you start out, you don't make very much. You're, you know.
0: No, no, no. I, I mean the rules. I mean, how many of these uh, different? Uh, well, I'll get
1: there. In, I'll get there in okay. a second. Yeah. So. Um, So, now each time you add a rule, it turns out we're getting, it's actually going out, it's kind of interesting. It's it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, you know, make another rule. I forget we probably had like, it must have been like 10 or 12 rules by that point. Then suddenly, we're not running into any problem. And we fill the table with tiles. Uh, So, up to that point, we filled it might be that much, and then suddenly that much. Or that much. Uh, well, that was interesting. We didn't expect that. So we thought there was going to be a steady, like, pushing out, like a right. proportional push, but suddenly it looked like... Then, so, okay, then we looked at the rules um, and looked at the rule list. And the rule, if you had read it, would have, as we had written it at first, would have said something like, if you have a skinny tile next to a fat tile in this angle or whatever, don't do the following thing. Don't add to a vertex this way. But when you look at the list of the rules, suddenly I realized what we were looking at was a rule which, unlike Penrose's rule, which constrained the way two tiles joined together along an edge, was actually constrained the way tiles join around a vertex. So it's still a local rule, a very local rule, but it's using not just your neighbors on either side of a tile, but a little bit more information. Right. But if you viewed it that way, it was actually a fairly simple rule to describe. It was basically, if there's only one way to add a tile to a vertex, add it. If there's not, don't add it. So we call forced and unforced. Either you had a vertex that was forced or not forced. If you followed that rule, you could avoid making mistakes. At least that's, you know, what we, uh, that's what appeared to be the case. And then the next thing was to then put this on a computer and prove whether or not that was, and show that it was indeed the case. Uh, and so what that showed, and, 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 and there's a little bit more to the story than that, but that's enough, I think, to capture the main thought of it. Uh, it got us over that psychological barrier that there was something about quasi-periodicity that required long-range Long range. conspiracy. You didn't need it, right. actually. Even though you might have really had that impression based on Penrose's tiles, mm-hmm. based on your experience, in fact, it's not true. And that's you know very interesting and surprising, and still not completely understood. But something I still work on aspects of that because um, uh, it's rather surprising. Um, now, around the same time, independently, a group in Japan discovered some, another quasi-crystal, But unlike the cases of Schectmans and the ones up to that point, this one could be grown in large nuggets, beautifully faceted, with diffraction spots that were pinpoint. And when you measured them, we're dead on to what the quasicrystal picture would have predicted. And these materials have the advantage, and that's why you could get those things, they could be grown very, very slowly, the way we grow very highly perfect crystals. They didn't crystallize. So... We don't know for sure if they're stable to all temperatures, but as far as we can measure in the laboratory, they seem to be stable. Um, and so that sort of changed the mindset of people, um, basically overnight, um, that the I mean the ocasio Glass community immediately conceded that no, that was something they can't do. And Pauling was a little bit more stubborn, uh, but I, I think he at least realized that if he was ever going to make a pattern as perfect as that, he suddenly needed he before he had had repeating units of hundreds of atoms he now needed to go to tens or hundreds of thousands of atoms, a very complex model and with no good reason you know with no good reason behind it so um, that essentially established that quasi crystals can be synthesized in a laboratory
0: that's what i was say. Yeah. these guys in Japan did they how, how did that come about? Were they doing something, Was it again serendipity, or were they doing some, Were they doing something deliberately with this in mind, or or, or were they trying? To
1: they were create... doing something deliberately. So people were always were, once the subject started. This issue of could you make something more perfect was there. So I explained that why the theoretical prejudice was developing, why you couldn't make something perfect because of this long-range right. conspiracy. They. Um, fortunately, (laughs) didn't you know, just charged on and and started looking for other other quasi-crystals.
0: And the materials they chose uh, in terms of uh, the fact that they were stable over
1: uh, uh, That was more, I mean, it's like most work in material science, when you're looking for something new, it's mostly, you know, hunt and peck, trial and error, serendipity, with a little bit of intuition. So the intuition they were using was that the first material that had been found had aluminum in it. So what the f- first things that people began to focus on were aluminum plus other materials that might, play, you know, which with atomic properties more similar to manganese, the other element, to replace them in hopes of making something better. And at first they did just replace the manganese with a single other type of atom. Yes. This example was an example of aluminum, iron, and copper, They'd use two different elements to replace what was the manganese, and then even that's not enough you've got to play with different combinations of any time you make one of these choices you have to sort of run through many different combinations of uh, of ra- various ratios of them, and then you have to look through the material which may or may not be homogeneous to find if there's something interesting there so it's a long painstaking process but that's you know that's what material scientists are used to doing. It's um, what makes it uh, very challenging and, and uh, a very challenging field. But when they find something interesting, it's a new material, which is very, very interesting.
0: Right. So there must have been, when this happened, it was a big deal, obviously. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I would have said they found the first bona fide quasicrystal. I mean, Schectman found something icosahedral, like but we can't quite be sure what it is. But this is the first thing which you, I think you can say that's, you know that sort of took us past the point where there was no more ambiguity about do quasi-crystals exist. The question now was uh, why do they exist? Um, and there it began a debate that even some people still debate today. Uh, is it because they're inherently delicate forms of matter that if you form just the right conditions in the laboratory you can manage to make them and freeze the material? before it crystallizes, uh, or are at least some of them just like crystals, just other energetically favored phases. So in some cases, or maybe in most cases, crystals are favored, but maybe for some combinations, quasi-crystals are favored. So if you have something in mind like the models that I was showing you, those have those Lego-like joinings, mm. which if you think of those as the atomic interactions, that would be an example that would mimic, oh, the quasi-crystal is favored, and you can't make the crystal. Are there mater- maybe are materials like that? Is it energetic, simple energetics, just like for crystals it forces them, or are they only delicate forms of matter? and that 's important both for fundamental physics and also for applications if you're going to use the materials for something. Right. So a key thing for us were these match- the fact that we could find these so-called matching rules or forcing rules that would force the structure. Um, and the growth rules, the rules for growing it perfectly. The fact that you could do that meant to me that somehow nature would take advantage of that for at least some materials. So maybe some are delicate, but there was no reason I could think of why they should all be delicate. Uh, And if they weren't all delicate, well, then there's no reason why you need to make them in a laboratory. Maybe nature made them. Nature made crystals, even crystals that aren't always stable, like diamonds are stable under the earth, but they're not stable. When they get to the surface of the earth, maybe nature has made them. And so, um, actually from fairly early on, when we even began to develop the idea, I already had the idea of whether or not in mind to you know, look to see in nature rather than look for colorways to look in the laboratory. A third possibility was to look to nature. Maybe nature had made them and we just hadn't noticed them. And? Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, first thing I did was uh, go to museums and just look in mineral cases, and you whenever know, I had a chance, and say, you know, maybe someone's mislabeled something. Maybe they're icosahedral really? things. Really? You yeah, yeah, yeah. You eat, <laughs> well, you have to look for nature. Where are you yeah, gonna yeah. look for nature? think <laughs> um, so, um So where did you go? What, what, what? I went to the American Natural History Museum in New York and the Smithsonian in Washington, which are two very extensive collections. And the problem there, what, for me, was uh, you actually did find icosahedral things, but they were these multiplete twinned mm. materials. The uh, most famous one, by the exam- by the way, example, besides gold is fool's gold. pyrite often. pyrite you sometimes see or fool's gold, you see in, form beautiful cubes. But sometimes you'll also see it form these uh, nuggets which look like they have pentagons. They're made of pentagons on the surface. Mm. And so you think, oh, this violates the laws of crystallography. It mm. must be a quasi-crystal. Then you look twice. You say, actually, those pentagons are a little distorted. They're not quite right. This is actually something which is well known in the study of pyrites that they form the second form of cubic lattice, where the facets are pentagonal, but distorted pentagons. But it's still a cubic structure. Hmm. If you take its diffraction, it's a. But but there were. It turns out there's a bunch of materials like that. So I learned all about about what are called pyritohedra and things that would mimic, superficially mimic. Uh, but I didn't find anything that was um, that way that was uh, promising. So I put that aside for a while in my mind. Um, These guys just, by the way, let you come in? to the Well, you can look at It's a public museum, so you can look at them. I didn't go to the back rooms. I didn't go to Oh, the... you
0: did? You just, you just were looking in the public? Sure, yeah.
1: Well, there's lots of, lots of materials there. Yeah, because you're looking for you know, something, you know, if it wasn't a very intelligent way. It's just something you do. Um, I mean, you do the best you can. Uh, and then occasionally I'd run into somebody who might work in one of those museums. Have you seen anything that reminds you of this? You know, no. You know, so I, it was just one of those things I would occasionally come back to. But I began to, um, I discovered something um, a, few, a few years later um, that made me think there was a way of we could search systematically for them. Uh, so it turns out that there is um, an international catalog of a computer database of what are called powder diffraction patterns. Um, Now, powder diffraction patterns are not like the ones I was describing to you up to this point. You take a single crystal and you shine electrons through them or X-rays through them and you get that beautiful lattice of pinpoints. Mm -hmm. Um, In order to do that, you need a very perfect, large, single grain of material. And often for materials, whether they're, they're synthetic or mineral, you're not so lucky. You can get many tiny little grains, none of which is big enough to get a diffraction pattern of. Uh, and you can take the diffraction pattern of that powder of them. It's called a powder pattern. Mm-hmm. But that means some of them, crystallites are rotated one way and some another way, another way. And so the pattern you get out isn't that beautiful lattice of points. But it's as it, it's imagine taking that lattice of points and rotating it around its center. So every point now traces out a circle. So you get a lattice of circles. Now that you can't tell the symmetry just by eye. Right. But there's still information there. The spacing between those circles is actually information. Mm. For example, if it's a crystal, the the spacing between the radii of those circles has to obey certain relations. If it's a quasi-crystal, you're going to get other relations because it has that quasi-periodicity. There's irrational ratios in there. So I had the idea that somehow by looking at the powder diffraction patterns, one might be able to Um, identify some quasi-crystal uh, quasi-crystal candidates and since there were were like 9,000 mineral patterns in there I could look at 9,000 at once with data Um, uh, so I had that idea in my mind but I was working on other things Um, and then shortly after I came to Princeton I moved to Princeton in 1998 and I was asked to give a colloquium and I decided to give a colloquium on quasi-crystals and what we knew at the time and sitting in the audience was a ge- geoscientist by the name of Ken Defay, who was at that time on the faculty here. Uh, and he came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, great talk, but um, I'm curious. Uh, Has anyone ever seen a natural quasicrystal before? And I said to him, no, but I think I know how to look for one. And that got him really interested. And he said, oh, really? And then I described to him a little bit about my idea. And he said, oh, I have just the person for you to work with. Uh, there's a bright undergraduate student by the name of Pierlu. And uh, he's a physics major, but he's actually, as a, you know, he was a, he was a mineral collector and, and you know, won all kinds of contests for his understanding of minerals when he was in high school, kinds of competitions. And he, you know, he knows how to use an uh, electron diffraction microscope, electron microscope oh, uh, down the street. And so, you know, a few days later, I met with him and, um, and in Princeton, we have these senior thesis projects. He decided to work with me on the senior thesis project. So, our goal was first of all, step one, do what I just said, uh, find a mathematical algorithm that would help pick out the likely quasicrystals from, from the rest of the things that were not likely quasicrystals. In this case, icosahedral quasicrystals. Uh, so, we did that. And then uh, it took a while to get that method to work. But, you know, after we finally got to work, we could find that there were. You know, we were some examples of real quasicrystals, so the, those were picked out, of course, but they were already known. They were synthetic materials that we know were right. known. They were kind of yeah. our test Base. samples. Yeah. But then there were other samples in that same, that in our, in our separation technique uh, algorithm, were close to that of the quasicrystal. Uh, and so those would be our candidates. Now you have to, for each one, find a sample of it, bring it to Princeton, Slice it, dice it, so it's thin enough for the electron microscope. Search around and see if you can find whether uh, uh, it has, is quasi quasicrystal or not. So we begin, and you can think of that as a a pretty tedious process. Just the finding is, it was never never the case uh, in any of the examples that it was like, I could go to the American Natural History Museum and get a sample of it. It was always only in one location in the world, and often... There were all kinds of fun stories, you know, side stories associated with it. Usually some place where only one person had it, and they had it in some back room someplace, and they had to find it. And and then miraculously, they did find it. Then you'd get it here, and you'd slice it, and dice it, and look at it. No, it's a crystal. Uh, And then you'd do this again, and and there were other kinds of funny adventures uh, along the way. But uh, at the end of about a year and a half, we... um, we didn't come up with any examples. They're all false positives. Uh, and the problem wasn't our algorithm. The problem was, it turns out, the International Mineralogical Catalog isn't precise enough. Um, so that when we get the material, and so the catalog collects data from various groups and over time, uh, but the instruments have improved over time. Their accuracy, their precision over time. So when we look at very precise instruments, we see the peaks aren't quite, the circles aren't quite the radii, that were reported, just enough off that, compared to the catalog, that in the catalog, it seemed to be a good quasicrystal. Reality, it was not. Okay, so you have to live with false positives if you're going to play this game.
0: Did they start updating their standards after, after this sort of thing? No, it's... it's
1: no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, actually, they're very kind to us because that catalog is um, it's a fairly expensive catalog, and it has all the software in the front that protects you from seeing their database, except one by one, and we needed to do a whole search. They were kind enough to give us direct access to the computer database behind them, which enabled it, which is what made it possible for us to do it all at one shot. So it was very important what they did. But the nature of the catalog is that it collects data, so they have to live with the fact that there's going to be some kind of inaccuracy. And They're not looking for crazy people like us who are using mathematical algorithms for searching for things. So we failed, but we wrote a paper at that time explaining our method, our methodology, and explaining our failures, but we still had things on our list that we hadn't yet been able to find. By now, Peter's graduated. He has to go to Harvard and work on a PhD. Ken's emeritus. He's left. He's moved to San Diego. So you know, it's basically me and uh, Nad Yao, who works in, uh, in our imaging lab that does the electron diffraction work, left to continue the project. Um, but we said in the in the in the, in the uh, paper, if anyone wishes to join our search, we'd be very happy to have you join us. Uh, but no one, no one volunteered <laughs> um, a, until six years later. An email comes in from someone I've never heard of, uh, a fellow by the name of Luca Bindi, and uh, Luca says uh, explains that he's uh, the curator of the. Uh, Mineralogical Museum in Florence, and he'd be happy to join the search. So we found another crazy person. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and it, yeah, it turned out that to be quite fortunate that of all the people in all the world, he's the person who joined the search. Um, uh, partly because it will become clear in a moment, there was something in his museum, but equally important, probably more important, was Luca himself turned out to really be. Easily, you know, rapidly or instantaneously, become as fanatical about this search as I was, so that uh, you know there are many instances of the next years following where um, uh, we got stuck. Would be some it like we were just dead in the water, uh, and and it just took some combination of stubbornness and luck, and and uh, to pass to get past it more often than not, it was Lucas, you know, he, he figured out the way to get get us past that barrier. Um, and he's also a marvelously skilled in the in, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, laboratory in terms of picking out materials with, you know, microscopic materials I can't see. You know, he can put them on the head of a pin and move them from here to here. He's just really an uh, amazing character. And uh, you know, uh, we, we sort of began a relationship which is now um, we talk to each other, Skype to each other, almost every day, mm-hmm. uh, including today. There's always something going on in this, in this subject that continues to the present. And uh, so, so that's kind of how we, but at the beginning, this wasn't so clear. For the first year or so, it was just like the case with when we were working with Peter. He would find a material that was in our catalog. He happened to have it in his mineralogical museum. He would do a crude, slice it and dice it into a crude measure. It, failure, 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 and then um, about a year into it, he said he wanted to try something that wasn't in the catalog at all. Um, so the catalog, you know, only collects certain minerals, but he had some minerals that were not in the catalog, and one of them looked particularly interesting because it had metallic aluminum in it, and metallic aluminum was known to occur in some quasi crystals. So why not look for something, you know, that uh, that, uh, of that sort. And this material, it's, it was, uh, came in a small box. It was, uh, it, its name was Khatirkite or Ketirkeit. Um It described itself as coming, the box described the mineral as coming from the Koryak Mountains in far eastern Russia. And in the box, if you open the box, uh, there was this tiny grain of material, about a few millimeters big. Um, um, and, um that ended up being a very important few millimeters. What did Luca do? Well, did like in every other example, he sliced the material. And then you know, with the electron microscope, you can go in using a probe. You can measure the local chemistry of the material. And uh, it, was a very con- it was a rock, not a, min- not a nugget. So that means it had many different minerals mm-hmm. in it. So you know, some of them were really chatyrkite. Chatyrkite turns out to be a crystal phase of copper and aluminum, copper aluminum too. Then you know, other regions showed a different crystal phase known as cupolite. He found some of those. Uh, then he found two that didn't correspond to anything in the catalog uh, in the known, in the, among the known minerals. And so those would be the things to go after. And uh, one of them turned out to be a crystal phase that we eventually understood. And the other one looked more promising. So then he tried to isolate those. And to isolate meant pick out those tiny little grains you know um, so we're now talking well, well I'll explain what tiny means in a moment but um, tiny little grains and so by the time you've done all this this sample is gone except for these two little grains so by the time it came to me it came to me in a box at the ends of two glass needles two little specks of stuff <laughs> yeah, so I was looking for a quasicrystal that size you know and I you know, and I'd had this experience in the past when I would look at some of these samples after you'd slice them and dice them and think you know uh, If this turns out to be the quasicrystals inside this, I'm going to be disappointed because I wanted something that size. And 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 here I can barely even see what I'm looking at. So um, we tried... So so anyway, I brought it over to Nan Yao in in our prison lab, in our imaging lab. Um, And we tried, while they were still on the glass needles, we tried to do some measurements, but those didn't work out so well. So we had to do this task of removing these little specks from the glass needles. Uh, these specs, the way Luke had prepared the samples was he had, uh, I guess he had made these, cut out these, punched out these little grains, put some glue on the needle and then sort of dipped it in the stuff. So we thought, okay, we'll unglue it. So we, uh, so Nan had the idea of putting some acetone on the end of it. Uh, and so he put one tiny little drop of acetone and poof, the whole thing disappeared. And I thought, oh my god. <laughs> um, uh, now fortunately, uh, I'm not sure, he had he, roughly planned it, but below there was a little crucible. Uh, and what happened is, it actually took one grain to deglue it and it fell into the crucible, so we actually lost nothing. Uh, if, we, if for some reason we hadn't had the crucible there, it probably would have been the end of that project. Um, but there was a crucible there, so then we could go in the crucible and begin to isolate the materials. Now the next problem was we had to do, put in the electron microscope, The problem with that is the electron microscope was booked up for several months. Several months. Yeah, it's a very uh, so our electron microscope is a shared facility, Mm. and so uh, people sign up for it. So, um, I. um,
0: uh, uh, Princeton's a poor university, after all.
1: Well, they have a good electron microscope. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's principal. It is a central facility. That whole the whole building that's in. Has uh, expensive machines that no single investigator would afford, but which, uh, if you have a large community, you can afford. So that's a strategy which a lot of uh, universities use to right. get the best instruments. Anyway, so, um, so we agreed that uh, we'd have to go at an off hour. And the off hour turned out to be getting up at 5 in the morning on New Year's Day, 2009. And um, I'm sure both our families thought we were a little bit nuts. But nevertheless, we snuck out of each of our respective houses, converged in the lab, and uh, by the time I had gotten there, I guess it didn't take very long. Uh, now I managed to get the speck in the electron microscope, managed to find... The speck itself was made of even tinier grains, like a powder of tinier grains. Managed to find one that was thin enough that the electrons could penetrate it, part of it. And it seemed like must have just been a few minutes that suddenly a diffraction pattern appeared, which was a beautiful... Quasi-crystal diffraction pattern, uh, uh, pinpoint-like, beautifully aligned, much more perfect than Schottmann sample. And so there's no, you know, you just knew. Oh, we found a quasi-crystal in this rock.
0: But did you, did you even begin to have? It seems like you were incredibly tenacious with this whole thing with the with the acetone and the crucible. You had it's to, specific, be, yeah, which, yeah. So, but was this sort of thing happening all the time? Or, yes. Or, Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
1: By this point, there had been, you know, tens of adventures in which you had to be absolutely crazy, and bad things would happen, and you have to compensate for the bad things. Things would get. So so yes, the the whole nature of the project is you had to be nutty and fanatic to to pursue this, because it required this kind of fanaticism on many levels in in order to move forward. Um, In order, otherwise you shouldn't start. Because you're looking for a, a needle in the
0: haystack, or mm-hmm. maybe a needle isn't in the haystack. So, uh, so now that you've seen this thing, there must be bigger crystals of the exact same thing somewhere.
1: We, so we should be finding more in, in even in in the grains that we have. And we, and so the first thing we wanted to do was figure out what was the symmetry of this material. So we found this quasi-crystal diffraction pattern that showed, uh, which showed a pattern which. Um, was similar to Schechtman's, but didn't necessarily have to have the same symmetry. So if it has the symmetry, you have to rotate the material, take other diffraction patterns and sort of figure out what the other symmetries are. But sure enough, it did have the same symmetry as Schechtman's pattern or uh, acosahedral pattern, so it was I-Kassahedl. And The next thing it did we, is that we measured its chemical composition, and its chemical po- composition uh, turned out to be something like 63% aluminum and uh, 24% copper and the rest iron. And uh, when I saw those numbers, I thought, whoa, I know that combination. That actually is the same combination as the Japanese group in 1987 had made the laboratory synthetically, the same material. In fact, I had some of that synthetic material in my office because I had worked on that material when I was at Penn, and I had kept some of it. We could even compare one with the other to really check carefully the composition. They really wow. were the same. So the only thing is, went to Tsai, the, uh, the group leader in Japan, went to a tremendous amount of effort to synthesize it. And our guy is a grain in the middle of the most complex rock, all this stuff going on in it. You'd never think to make something a highly perfect quasicrystal in the middle of something like that. So... Could project could have just stopped there with an announcement paper, but instead I went up the street. Uh, well, I actually called Ken DeFay to tell him the news. He was now in San Diego Emeritus. And I said, uh, I have a question though, which is, how in the world did nature to figure, figure this out when we have to work really hard to make it? What is this telling us about quasicrystals? Is it telling us something about their stability or was it telling us about uh, some geophysical process? He said, well, there's a fellow that you should go see. And so he sent me to uh, a, a famous petrologist here. A petrologist is someone who sort of figures out the way how rocks form, um, physically form. Uh, his name is Lincoln Hollister. And um, so I went up the street, made an appointment, made call, made some, my email, I contacted him, made an appointment with him, I met him in his office, which is just a few blocks up the street. Um, I told him the whole story I just told you now. And uh, and he gave me this look which I learned later to realize, watch out, <laughs> but I didn't know what the time would have meant, uh, and he said, well, what you have there, Paul, is impossible. Uh, and I said, no, I don't think it's impossible because we know we can synthesize this in the laboratory, and uh, he said, and, and we know quasicrystals are possible, and I began to remind him about what we knew about quasicrystals, and he said, interrupted me and said, no, no. I don't know about the quasi-crystal part, that's new to me, but what you've told me is that the material you have there is a mixture of aluminum, copper and iron. Metallic aluminum, metallic copper and metallic iron. Metallic aluminum is known to have a voracious affinity for oxygen. There's lots of aluminum in the earth, but it's all attached to oxygen. And actually we go to some effort to separate aluminum from oxygen, that's what aluminum foundry is about. And it takes a special processes to do that, a lot of energy. But in nature, we don't find aluminum, metal. Um, uh, so that's impossible. So I, I, asked, him, I uh, asked him, because when that word impossible comes to me, it's uh, <laughs> a question I always ask. Uh, uh, when you say it's impossible, do you mean like it's provably impossible, like one plus one equals three, that kind of impossible? Or do you mean just very, very unlikely? just violate some common assumptions, or are you telling me it's really physically impossible? And so he thought about it a few moments, and and fortunately he said, uh, well, uh, if I were forced to come up with an idea for such a material that was natural, uh, I'd need to get conditions which are highly reducing to strip the oxygen from aluminum. And the only place you're going to find that is someplace deep under the earth, near the boundary between the core and the mantle. Um, then you have to figure out if you manage to do that, how are you going to get that thing to the surface of the Earth? Mm. And he said, "Well, people have speculated that there are these things called superplumes, which maybe even extend at one time or extended at one time down to the core mantle boundary, and that would be give your sample a ride up to the surface." And I thought to myself, "Oh." He meant the second kind of impossible <laughs> he meant it's very unlikely it's a very unlikely story, but if it 's true, it's really interesting, uh, and in fact, it would you would know, symbolize the first proof of such a theory if that were the case, so that it was really interesting if, even if unlikely um, so at that, I had for some time been thinking about an alternative possibility, which I asked him, and I said, "Well, um, how about meteorites um, I was very naive about them, but I thought, well, there's no oxygen in space. That's not true. There's lots of oxygen in space. But I thought, there's no oxygen in space. Um, couldn't have been made under those conditions. And he said, well, I don't really know that much about meteorites, but I know someone who does. And so a week later, we found ourselves on the train to the Smithsonian, Washington, to, to visit the head of the Division of Meteorites, Glenn McPherson, and. Uh, we get to Constitution Avenue, we're about to enter the door, and Glenn's already at the door, and he's very excited, and he wants to tell me before I even enter the door that what we have is impossible. <laughs> and uh, so, Glenn's is, you know, both Lincoln and Glenn are these pretty tough guys. You know, this field is full of tough, tough, uh, skeptical people, and he was, you know, as skeptical as Lincoln is, you know, Glenn's kind of yet the next level. Uh, so he began to tell me all the way on the long walk to his office the various reasons, not just the aluminum part, but, you know, he knew all about meteorites, he had seen all types of meteorites, and ours can't be a meteorite, and here's a bunch of reasons why it's not, including the aluminum, and it's certainly going to be a piece of slag, some kind of anthropogenic byproduct of some sort of industrial process. And, and several hours later, we found ourselves back on the train, and I'm sure that Glenn thought he'd never hear from us again, and I'm sure that Lincoln thought he'd never hear from me again. Um, but he didn't account for the fact that Luke and I were both pretty fanatic uh, by this point, and you know, even if it was something anthropogenic, I still wanted to understand how. So exactly. I, I felt like it was a win-win situation. Yeah. It wasn't quite as nice if it were natural, not nearly as nice. But you know, let, let me try to understand how this formed. So I began. To, uh, well, we, we sort of began an adventure, which took about the next year and a half, to try to do two things. Uh, first of all, to try to determine. Well, how had that sample gotten to Florence in the first place? Uh, according to the Box, it didn't come from an aluminum foundry. It came from some remote place in the middle of nowhere where there are no foundries. Is that true or not true? Uh, and then, in the meantime, the laboratory had still a few specks left. Can we, by studying those specks and studying what slag looks like compared to natural materials, can we distinguish from the laboratory which is which? And so... This is, you know, next year and a half is impossible to describe the way it really worked out because there was literally every day news on one front or the other front or both fronts, sometimes fluctuating good news, sometimes bad news, good news, bad news. It would just go, and sometimes, you know, within a day there would be something happening. So we're each doing our separate things, but in the meantime we're also working on this on the, on the side, Luke and I, that is to say. Uh, so that's why we sort of began these sort of daily daily debriefings or something like that. And it became a little bit competitive, in fact, as to who would have the most interesting news. So oh, really? Kind of, yeah, yeah. So, 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 because so, you know, so, some of it also involved literature searches and searching for people and things like that. So, so, but it was, it was just t-
0: it was just the two of you,
1: basically heart. the two of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with every now and then, although Lincoln and Glenn were sure they weren't going to hear from us, I would send them information to try to see if we were getting closer to. Switching their needle from negative to positive, or giving us more information, uh, so they, we kept them in you know, stronger in the loop, um, and the lab work. Nan was still, Nanya was still involved in the lab work. Um, so, um, so, so, let's focus on one of those stories because you can't. Let's focus on the story of where the rock come from. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what do you think you would do to start? I wonder where the rock came come, really comes from. The rock says it comes from the Korak. Should I be, first of all, what would be your inclination? Should I believe it or not believe it?
0: Why well, should this fall through and take okay. a look at it? Okay, so fine, good. So how are you going to check? Um, so, so the the rock came from someplace in Siberia, you said. The rock says
1: it come, came from the rock the cover of the box says it's chertirite, and of course right. we have verified it has chertirite in it. Right. And it says, I mean, the other thing is, it says it comes from the Koryak Mountains, which you can look up and find that they're in far eastern Russia. Awesome. So How do you know that the rock, what would you do to check that the rock came from there, do you think?
0: Well, I'd uh, take a look and see if some other types of rock came, similar types of rock came from that, that okay. particular area. I'd start looking at some, so I'd start looking at other museums, other places, other... Good, other
1: good. So, so the first thing you might have thought of to try is to ask, is there any record of how the rock got into the museum? Right, That's what okay. About, so, so. okay, so <laughs> we'll, we'll get to your other ones. You're all, all good suggestions. You have to imagine that everything is going to be pursued. The story, this story is all about you pursue every possible lead mm-hmm. until you have to give it up. So first lead was, yeah, is there some record in, in a museum that tells you how it got there? turns out there was one sheet of paper, and that sheet of paper explains that the rock was sold with 10,000 other samples by a collector who lived in Amsterdam. and was sold in 1990. Okay, so you had that information. So okay, you want to follow that lead and say, okay, let's try to find the collector. Right. Okay. Fortunately, this is the day of the internet, so you don't have to write to lots of people. You know, snail mail. You can actually search on the internet, look for telephone, bo- look through telephone books in Amsterdam, crawl the streets of Amsterdam, find the Miller collectors. And so we did that for several weeks, but we found no such collector. You couldn't get a hold of him. Couldn't could- get a hold of him. I got some sort of hint that someone with that name was alive in the 1990s, but nothing, you know, nothing after that point. Um, so, dead end. Dead end. So then we try, you know, the next idea, okay, let's try other museums. I mean, this, this sample happened to be in the Florence Museum, but surely it's in many other museums. Yeah. So you get on the internet and you can contact all the museums, you can contact collectors, you can contact uh, people who sell minerals, everyone, got everyone looking for Chetircite uh, uh, samples. And we got some hits. We got, um that tell you about three in the West and one in St. Petersburg in Russia. And the ones in the West were kind enough to send us their samples. And when we examined them in the laboratory, what we found was nothing. And when I say nothing, not only did not they have quasicrystals, they didn't have katyrkite either. They, didn't have, they were fakes. So it turns out, actually, there's quite a bit of faking in the mineral market. Uh, minerals are you know, is it something that collectors collect, and uh, they're relatively inexpensive to buy, but relatively expensive and time-consuming to test. The kind of things we were doing, you know, slicing and dicing them, collecting and slicing and dicing them and isolating a sample, it, you're talking about months of work, you know, for each sample. So people don't tend to do that. They'll tend to buy the sample, and then, okay, if someone's stupid enough to write them and volunteer to test their sample, they'll... They'll send it to you, and they'll take the risk that if they'll either win or lose. Uh, Unfortunately, these guys lost. Um, And uh, even today, uh, thanks to the story I'm telling you, if you go to one of these big shows like in Tucson or Munich where they sell minerals, today you'll feed Keturkite on sale. But I suggest not buying it because at least all the samples we've tested are still fakes. So...
0: So how much of the stuff So this is, this is very rare, presumably? So it turned out it was
1: very, very rare, which we didn't know. And that was very costly in the sense that um, Luke had sliced and diced and pulverized and lost all the context around our sample in order to go for his one bit, thinking, okay, this won't be so hard to replace. <laughs> uh, of course, this, is, this infuriated uh, you know, a traditional petrologist, like uh, Lincoln. So, so, so I should say, in, the field, uh, in this field there are the mineralogists who care about one mineral, and the petrologists who want to know the context of that mineral relative to others. Mm-hmm. For them it's important to keep the things intact. And, and for us it was important, because we wanted to understand how our guy formed. So this, was costing, this cost us a lot of time to make up for it. Um, on the other hand, for the sample in Russia, we knew that guy was real. And we knew it was real because uh, he was, uh, it had been published. It was the holotype sample for kite. So what that means is uh, if you're a mineralogist and you think you discover a new mineral, you write up a little report, present the data to an international commission. Mm. There are representatives from 30 countries that vote on whether that your data is good. They, make, they might push you back. They might ask for more. Eventually, they might accept it. Now you're ready to declare that you have a new mineral, but for that you still have to do two more things. You have to publish a paper about your mineral, and you have to put a sample of it in the museum. And this was the sample. St. Petersburg was the one in the museum that was... So, so you this knew particular. that one was the real deal. We knew that was the real deal. We even had the paper that described some of its properties, although it didn't mention anything about quasicrystals. It um, told us something about it. it was,
0: but but so far so you have that which yeah. you know is the real deal topologically, yeah. uh, uh, and then you had your sample that happened to be in Lucas Museum.
1: Yeah, we don't know if they're related.
0: <coughs> we just know
1: they both have kotirkite in them. So one could have come from the South Pole, or one could have come from the North Pole. You don't right. know. Yeah. Well, I, you know. Uh, uh, now it's true that the sample in Saint Petersburg was listed as coming from the Korayaks. They described where they found it. In Wh- the same place. Where are place. the Koryaks exactly? The Koryaks are in the, um, the uh, Kamchatka Peninsula, okay. which is the far yeah, eastern edge understand. of um, of Russia. So it's uh,
0: actually not all that far away from Alaska on the other yeah, side. Yes, it's just it's the opposite s-
1: side of the Bering Strait um, from uh, Alaska. Okay. Um, it's in the, the part that it's, uh, it came from. Isn't the southern part that your people are more familiar with? that sticks out into the Sea of Okhotsk. That's the one which has volcanoes, and uh, tourists can go there, etc. It comes to the yeah, yeah, you can, you, yeah. You can, it's a it's a it's a beautiful it's a beauty spot. Oh, okay. so it actually is worth visiting. But this actually comes from the northern part of the peninsula, which is desolate, has about a hundredth the um, the population of the Western Sahara. Uh, it is a famous. It's had various famous roles in history because of its proximity to Alaska, as the closest boundary. Between the U.S. and Russia, it almost started World War III during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Um, uh, uh, and now is um, a uh, more mining area, Um, uh, but still, you know, desolate. But that's where our guy came from. Okay, so that's so you've got now two samples that you're two samples. (laughs) We want to understand if if we. So I guess we were thinking about if we could prove any one sample was natural, like this one. That's enough sure. to get Lincoln and Glenn to rethink. But of course, they don't trust them any more than us, uh, maybe less than us. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so uh, we have to find out, well, did it, you know, is the paper that's describing this really correct or not? Uh, so, and, and can we check that material? Well, you can't check that material because it's the holotype material. Uh, but you could find the authors of the paper and begin to track them down. Right. So. Uh, it turned out, you know, the authors, the lead author on this is a fellow by the name of Leonid Razin. Asking around on the internet, we eventually discover he was head of the Institute of Platinum during Soviet times, which makes him a very suspicious character as to what his political connections would have been. And he turns out he did have those kinds of political connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and we hear rather bad stories about him as... Um, being um, uh, the way he would treat his competitors, um, using his connections, and uh, questions about his character and things that would make you very worried about whether the sample is real or not. It, yeah. um, but in the meantime, uh, eventually I found out that he's emigrated to Israel. So get you on know, the internet again, looking at the telephone books in Israel, and I find there's some guy, Al Razin. Uh, I call him up. Um, and no one speaks English at this place, so call them up with a someone who speaks Hebrew, and no one speaks Hebrew at this place. Third time, I get someone who speaks Russian. Of course, everyone speaks Russian at this place. And I uh, finally get some guy to the phone, and I say, are, are you Leonid Razin? Yes. Are you the guy that wrote this paper in 1985 describing Katirkite? Yes. Uh, are you the person who found this sample originally? Yes. So it's all going well, and I say, um, well, can you describe to me the conditions under which you found it? Because the naturalness is very much depends on you know, where you found it and what conditions. Um, uh, and um, you know, I didn't remember that much. What Lily could remember was exactly the stuff that was in the paper, which was not very much. Uh, so that was worrisome. And then I said, well, do you have your geological notebook? Because that would have all those kinds of details. And he said, um, I'm not sure. It might be in Moscow. I thought, mm, this is bad, uh, because uh, for a geologist, a field geologist, you never lose your it, yeah, notebook. You yeah. know, yeah. you always and you always know where it is. Uh, okay, well, do you have more material? I said, well, maybe in Moscow. I said, okay, and now I'm in the conversation. I'm looking up the cost of an airlines to Tel Aviv <laughs> to uh, to Moscow. It's not so bad. I said, well, if I pay your way, would you be willing to go back and? Um, um, to look for the notebook and for the more materials. And he said, well, got, the discussion got kind of complicated then and, and it took us a few days of back and forth with various people getting involved to figure out that what he wanted was a significant reward if he were to go back and do that monetary reward. I tried to explain to him that I don't have, this, is a, this is a project which, is, by the way, is operating with zero federal funding. It's, you know, everyone's working for free on this project. Um, and so we have no such resources. Um, but doesn't convince him. He just gets angry when you when you when you say this uh, kind of thing. So he's kind of a uh, tough character uh, to deal with. And so we have to make a decision. Well, do I even try? You know. So some people say, well, maybe you should try. You're at a dead end if you, unless you pay him. So what are you going to do? So I thought about. You know, should I manage to come up with some resources to do it? Maybe he'll lower his price or something like that. But I got worried because. He um, wasn't able to answer any of my questions. And I was afraid he could come back with a notebook and no materials. If he came back with a notebook, how would I know yeah. the material were, when that notebook was written? Yeah. Um, so after a few days, I decided, that's it. I can't, go. I can't pursue it. So um, so that was the end of that lead. Uh, and so we're out of leads. Uh, and so that's an example of what I was saying. You know, there are various points in the story where just thought you we were done.
0: Yeah, yeah you convinced yeah. me but it's a difficult story. But but uh, tell give me something promising. Give me, give oh you me think some...
1: something is gonna happen? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh one night uh Luca's having
1: dinner with his sister and a friend and explaining the story that I've just explained to you. And uh the friend asks, uh, what is the name of this collector? And uh Luca tells him and he says, Oh, I live in Amsterdam and unfortunately that's a very common name. Yeah. Like John Smith, Smith or something like that. Um, there is some woman who lives down the street. Older woman. I help her with groceries. She happens to be have that name. I'll go ask if she knows anything, but not likely. Uh, 24 hours later, we get an email. Guess what? She's the widow of this collector. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, the good news is that we found the collector. The bad news is that the collector is no longer alive. Um, so... Uh, he sent Luke to Amsterdam to meet uh, this right. woman. Yeah. Uh, he, he, she won't meet with him, but she'll meet with the friends. so he has to sort of do this a little bit indirectly. She's very nervous about things. She explains that um, her husband was the collector, not her. Her husband used to collect minerals. He used to collect seashells. At one point, he sold his minerals because he just wanted to collect the seashells. And, she knows, you know, and that was long ago, 1990. She knows nothing about it. So uh, it doesn't sound very promising. Uh, but after enough questions, uh, she admits that her husband used to keep a secret diary. And uh, although the minerals were sold to Florence, she kept the secret diary. And so she lets the friend look at the secret diary. And sure enough, there's an entry in there uh, for Cotircaiton. And explains that he took a trip to Romania in 1987. And he met a person there described as Tim, and um, Tim the Romanian. And uh, Tim, well, this is strictly illegal in Soviet times to, smuggle, to take minerals out, was clearly a mineral smuggler, but that's how he got his samples of minerals. Um, so
0: it came from Tim the Romanian?
1: came from Tim the Romanian. And I thought, when I got that news, I thought, double great, we're now past the collector, and t- it can't be anything easier than to find Tim the Romanian sl- smuggler. Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> you go on the internet again, the same thing, and you know, after a month, Nothing. No one's ever heard of anyone named Tim anywhere, ever using that as a pseudonym or anything. No one's ever heard of mineral smuggling in Romania, which probably certainly took place, but no one knew about it. So we're dead again. You want to
0: yeah. go on? Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: So, um, well, what can we do? We, we send Luca back to Amsterdam and say, is, is, is the wife ever heard of Tim the Romanian? Um, of course she hasn't because she had nothing to do with his collection yeah. right so she no, no she does, knows nothing about it um, and, but she confesses finally that her husband used to keep a secret secret diary no yes no. so in the secret secret diary <laughs> where his illegal where he kept details of his illegal dealings and, and there there's an entry that explains that Tim the Romanian is actually getting his stuff from a certain laboratory the laboratory is of a person by the name of Rudashevsky We knew that name. That was the same laboratory where the analysis was done for the St. Petersburg sample. And it goes on to explain that he's getting his materials from this person, Razin, our guy in Israel. So in fact, our guy in Israel who was well known for getting uh, competitors in trouble by accusing them of smuggling minerals out of uh, Russia, was himself smuggling minerals out of Russia. But more importantly, we now know our material isn't just sort of like the one in St. Petersburg. It is part of the one in St. Petersburg. So if we can figure out where that one came from, for sure, with confidence, we can be sure where ours comes from. And it looks good now because at least according to the paper, it really did come from the Koryaks. So it wasn't just on the box, not just an accident, it really turned out to be true. Uh, But but we don't really believe anymore that Rosin had anything to do with this discovery. Somebody else must have brought right. it to Razin, so right. who did that? So we had spent a long time, again, asking various people who knew him, who would he likely use? We, you know, we, lots and lots and lots of dead ends of various sh- sorts. Are you but, right to Israel? Is uh, no, we didn't go to, uh, I wasn't gonna get near, the, oh, well, I wasn't gonna get near Razin because um, I did try to approach him again through Rudyshevsky. Mm-hmm. Rudyshevsky, uh, um, his son especially, was very helpful, was very interested in helping us, although they couldn't help us. They had no materials, but he was willing to call Rosen to explain to him that this was a scientific investigation. And Rosen basically blew up at him and accused him and his father as being smugglers and he was going to use his former KGB connections to get them in trouble and essentially threatened them. Our uh, so, lives, and although they didn't take it seriously, I took it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, so you um, didn't want to go to Israel? I didn't want to go. Him. It wasn't, and there was no point because right. I didn't think he knew the answer. Okay, so 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 what did you? So um, eventually, we, well, there had been a, in the original paper. There had been in the opening article. This uh, it described in a very vague terms. There's the, these mountains. There's some stream there. There's some guy washing from the stream, it gave a name for the guy, but this guy wasn't an author. So it was kind of a weird thing, you know? And it wasn't exactly clear. You know, there weren't enough <laughs> ner- verbs and nouns in, the, in this to even be sure that we were talking about how you got the sample. It wasn't exactly clear what it was about. But among other things, among the many leads we had fi- found, we had tr- tried to trace, was to try to find the guy that was mentioned there. But we had been told by members of the Russian Academy of Sciences that y- y- this is gonna be a fictitious character because um, if you were head of the Institute of Platinum and you're explaining where you found katirakai, which is worthless, you're not going to give away where you're looking for platinum. So um, this is a common technique, they said. And we've been told other things. We, someone else told us that he was a real person, but he was dead. And we, So we had given up on this leap for a number of times. And then one day, looking for you know, a different subject, as we were one of our many, many leads, we ran into a paper on the internet which he was listed as an author in 1995. And it didn't tell us how to find him, but, it get, but then the co authors, we were able to find one of the co authors. And I was finally get, able to get him on the phone in Moscow. Uh, his name is Vadim Disler. And, um, and I asked him, What about this guy, Valery Karachko, who was your co author? What can you tell us about him? And so he was able to tell us you number know, one, he was a real person. Okay, that was good. That he had been actually Disler's thesis student, PhD thesis student, not at the time of this discovery, but after he had worked for Rosin, he had come there because he had heard the story about Rosin, horror stories of Rosin, from Kriachia working with him, uh, and uh, and then um, he told me that he was still alive. So that was very exciting. And then he told me, uh, and he's coming to visit me next week, do you want to talk to him? So suddenly he went from this imaginary character to someone I could actually interact with. In a week? In a week. And intera- so it was very exciting to wait for that week. And the interaction was all done, like in most of my interactions internationally, is all done by email and Google Translate back and forth, so using all the you know, modern technology in order to conduct this. But he was immediately wonderful. He wrote a whole long story about how, in 1979, uh, he was, I guess, like a master's student. He was sent by Rosin out to this remote place in the Koriak where so there was this tiny stream uh, which gold had been found. And with gold is often associated platinum, so his job was to look for the platinum. And he had spent, you know, he and one other guy had spent a week there looking for it by digging stuff out of the stream, panning it, looking for it, and found nothing. Uh, and he didn't want to go back to Rosin empty-handed because he knew that was going to be big trouble. Yeah. So he'd found these shiny things, which he knew weren't platinum, but just to show that he'd found something. He wasn't wasting his time. So he brought him back, this kind of stuff. He'd given them to Rosin, and that's the last he had heard of this up until our contact. He didn't know that Rosin had taken it back to St. Petersburg. They had analyzed, they had found new minerals, they would published the new minerals, or that he would smuggled anything out. The only thing he had heard, knew about the story it was they'd heard, because by now our first paper had come out announcing that there might be quasi- natural quasi-crystals, he had heard about that because that had made some news in Russia because it seemed to have this Russian connection. And he didn't realize he was connected, but now he was connected to the story. And so he was just really excited about that. And He's a, he's a really wonderful person, uh, generally. Uh, and he volunteered to do anything he wanted to help. Um, but at the time, the important thing was we actually now knew exactly where, when, how our sample was found. It was not found in aluminum foundry.
0: Exactly. It was, it was a real a, natural...
1: A, a real natural something. Something, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the meantime, the story I didn't tell you is everything that happened in the laboratory. But let's imagine that after lots and lots of work, what we found in the laboratory was evidence from some of these little specks of material that our sample had been formed under very high pressures. Pressure is probably 100,000 times atmospheric pressure. Not Again, not something you'd find in a uh, byproduct of any kind of human activity. In fact, the only ideas that could possibly, at one point we had like a dozen ideas. We're now back to actually our original two ideas. We had many different ideas, but of those different ideas, the only ones that were compatible were high pressure, were deep under the earth right. or in space.
0: The extraterrestrial, the, the meteorite was your idea, yeah. but the other one was from one of these cranky crazy yeah. guys. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And at this time, you know, it was anybody's guess as to which one it was. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out there's a nice way of distinguishing the two, which is by measuring the oxygen isotopes in the material. It's an expensive process, so you don't go right ahead and do it first thing. Yeah. But there are a few places in the world where you can do it, including at Caltech. And by this time, I'd been traveling back and forth to Caltech and trying to get people to see if they had any ideas. And one of them had put me in contact with, a, with John Eiler and Yin Ben-Guan there who do these kinds of measurements. And now there was good reason to do those measurements. Uh, 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 Now I've distinguished the two possibilities. And it took about a summer's worth of work to do it. Um, But by the end of the summer, the data was clear and unambiguous. It corresponded perfectly and beautifully with meteoritic origin. And you can not only just tell it's a meteorite, you can tell what kind of meteorite. It was not just any kind of meteorite, it was a special class of meteorites known as CV3 carbonaceous chondrites. These are, for meteorite experts, the most interesting and famous ones because they're they're, they're relatively rare, but they formed in the very earliest moments of the solar system, so 4.5 billion years ago. So suddenly, instead of talking about quasicrystals that formed in the laboratory in the last century, we're talking about quasicrystals that formed in nature even before there was an Earth, even before most of the minerals we know of were first formed. Um, now, one of the world's experts on this famous class of meteorites was the guy we were talking to in the Smithsonian, Glenn McPherson So, but now I sed- talk to you. For so this. suddenly, after giving us, you know, and I won't go, I won't go, didn't go through all the stories of the various, you know, sort of uh, qu- questionable emails along the way, you know, about why you are even do it, looking at this. Suddenly, as you would change, ah, you know, this was the definitive test. There was no question that this was correct. Now, this is. Really interesting. Now we've got to do, you know, a lot more tests. And the only problem was there was no more material to test. I was just going (laughs) to (laughs) say
0: We were out of material to
1: test. Uh, And so, um, and the only place you could hope to find it, since he was telling us no other thing was like it, the only hope would have been to go back and look for more. Uh, But most people, 99% of geologists, maybe 100% of geologists would have said, just because you found a grain there in 1979 doesn't mean you're going to come back. In 2011, you're going to find anything. The chances are, you know, it could have been an airburst and, you, you know, you'll never find another grain of this stuff. And so it seemed like a crazy mission to do, to go back there. And furthermore, it's a restricted region of Russia. So, you, you know, it's not like you can just buy a ticket and go there and look. You need permissions from the Russian government, the FSB, the modern KGB, the military, the local government of uh, Chukotka, the local... You need transportation to go out there. Just think about the pile of things that you you need to do. (laughs) You're not going to stop now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you need some money to make this work. Uh, And uh, so... But uh, I felt that if we didn't go now... uh, Mm -hmm. We'd never be able to go because Valery is now in his sixties, and uh, he's willing to go, but you know, better go now. He's um, crazy as it is. So um, literally within eight months of you know deciding that it was time to go, we were on the ground there. Um, so we got the money, managed to do that, managed to get uh, we brought uh, uh, Vadim Disler, Valery, who was working know in Disler. Brought, and and uh, with uh, uh, and with Disler's colleague, uh, Marina Yudovskaya, they kind of formed a team that helped us make all the local arrangements and governmental arrangements, all those things we had yeah, to do. Yeah. We did all that paperwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, we brought them actually to Princeton at one point because it wasn't clear how we were going to actually run this mission. We yeah, did, come on, tell me. You passed face. all this
0: stuff. I want to know what's going on. You, you, <laughs> you go there. It's difficult. Did we go there? Well, yes, we did. <laughs> and you found the stream and... it, it
1: I mean, and we so <laughs> you, you, you get to Anadir and you get in these. So oh, I should say one thing. When I originally when we were originally going to go, yeah. my notion was that I was not going to go. I'm not a field geologist, and actually I've never been camping before. So uh, <laughs> this is not my first place to have an experience. And furthermore, I probably do something stupid like break a leg or something and have to end the mission. So I had a lot of concerns about that. So I had this great plan. Where we'd helicopter people in to the site. And, uh, and there'd only be a few people to go, but they, they did the work. But it turned out the helicopter idea, by the time the Russians came to visit Princeton, that wasn't going to work for insurance reasons. We just couldn't get helicopters or proper insurance. So they said, We'll go in trucks. And they said, You must go, Paul, because uh, there's now enough room to go, and you really ought to go. So I was sort of uh, dragooned into going. Uh, I don't and actually believe that part. But anyway, no, go, go, go. Believe ahead. it. Believe <laughs> it. <laughs> you should believe it. Um, now, my plan was to stay back in the town of Anadir and let them go um, by helicopter, which I but, thought was a nice idea. Okay. But, okay, so we're, um, uh, so you, so, but they said, we'll go by truck. And I said, but I've been looking at Google Earth and there's no roads. They said, oh, don't worry, there's, there's <laughs> roads. Uh, so we get to Anadir and uh, the first, you know, we got off the plane in Anadir after a long trip. The, t- the whole team, I put together a combination of Americans. And the Russians and some graduate students that would apply some muscle power. could be some muscle power. Among them was my son Will, who was a geoscientist at Caltech and is now a geoscientist at Harvard. Uh, so that was a great aspect of it. Um, and we get to the place where the trucks are, and these trucks are not conventional trucks. These are treaded like tank-like, they the, the, the base is like a tank, but the top is like, I don't know, a beat-up van. Um, and those were our vehicles, those are our trucks. And, and the next day, we're out uh, at the edge of Anadir, ready to set off on the trucks in this tundra, this permafrost, which you can't really walk on very smoothly, and these trucks can kind of barely manage to make their way across. And you're moving across at a snail's pace yeah. for four days, and every day you're going up and down streams and into streams, and we uh, had some near fires and broken axles and a bunch of adventures along the way. Uh, we encountered bears, we encountered you know various uh, challenges along the way. Uh, but we get there. and uh, We um, spend the first afternoon looking to see if we can find where, just really remember where we found the material. Well, of course, things have grown since you then. It's not that. so easy to find, but... After a few hours, we actually find the spot um, and then begin sort of 10 days of uh, hard work of digging not just there, but up and down the stream, uh, material out. Uh, you dig it out, then you have to pan it, much like you would pan for gold, except Russian-style. And Russian-style panning is not like you know, the Western-style panning. It has its own um, protocol, uh, which Valerie was a world's expert Panner, and he loved to pan. <clears throat> Will loved to dig, so he was the main digger. Uh, and so he dug about one and a half tons of material out of there, panned it, Cloud, you know, carefully labeling, you see where everything came from. We had one team that was measuring, structurally mapping the geology of the air in case it, it wasn't a meteorite, and to try to understand better if it were a meteorite, how it had fallen. We had a little laboratory also back, which we did some analysis, but you, you can't tell I mean, you, see, you see in the field whether you've got a quasicrystal or not, or even you have the right chemistry. For that, you need an expensive right. instrument. So you can do some very rough visual things. And, uh, so we did the best we could to help guide the thing. And 10 days later, uh, we packed up and left with lots of samples, but not knowing what we had. Yeah. Uh, by the time we left the mountains... Uh, snow, winter had come to Kamchatka in August 5th or something like that. Sure, winter. So we barely got out. We barely got in late, early, enough time for things to have uh, melted and out enough time for uh, winter to have come. So it was like a perfectly timed mission. Managed to make our way back, had some final up. discussions. Then there was some issue about how to get the material out of Russia. We managed to get the material out of Russia. Uh, and then comes the tedious task of looking grain by grain to see if it's like looking at sand grains, one by one, and a grain of sand, and you have many grains of sand, um, which are sitting up there in the boxes over there, because we're still looking through them. Uh, And uh, six weeks later, um, Luca was mainly the one in charge of that, because he knew what to look for. Uh, He found a sample of material, which looked like meteoritic material. It had some shiny stuff on it. He removed the shiny stuff, took its x-ray diffraction pattern, and it turned out to be I casted a quasi-crystal. So, after all this time, this crazy story which I told you, which you, you know, could have been skeptical about and should have been skeptical about, it, and even we were skeptical about it on this whole adventure, suddenly we had actually managed to go there ourselves, pick something out, bring it back, and find quasi-crystal in it. And so that was a key moment. That was like, you know, first of all, no one expected to find anything, but the fact that we found something and that it was that just verified everything we'd been putting, the story we'd been putting together up to that point. And uh, since that time, uh, we've collected like nine grains of material of the same meteorite, um, which have different, which are, the meteorite was very heterogeneous, different things happened to different parts of it, but enough are in yeah. common, you can tell it's the same thing. Uh, they all have either keterkite or krupalite or uh, or what's now called icosahedrite, the first natural quasi-crystal in it. Um, And uh, then comes the challenge of trying to understand, to to analyze what else is in the grains, what other kinds of novel things are in the grains, and um, how the thing formed. And that's what we're in the midst of doing now. And in the process of doing that, we discovered a lot of interesting things that are unique to this meteorite so far. We discovered that that this high-pressure effect we, we saw actually repeated again in various parts of the sample, which means it underwent a very high-velocity impact, much higher than any CB3 carbonaceous chondrite has been observed to have before, Mm -hmm. um, which might have something to do with the story of how it formed. We've also found other new mineral phases, most of them crystalline, but just recently, just a week ago, uh, we officially announced the discovery of the second quasicrystal to be discovered in nature, from the same meteorite, a different material, aluminum iron nickel instead of aluminum iron copper, uh, and a different kind of quasicrystal, not icosahedral like the sample I showed you we were discussing, but one which we call decagonal. It's tenfold symmetric in a plane and then like stacks of tenfold symmetry, like Penrose tilings stacked one on top of the other. So, So completely different. Completely different symmetry and structure, yeah. So two different quasi-crystals in the in the same meteorite, and other interesting and other interesting things, and um, and uh, and now we are doing well. There's a lot of different tests that are happening right now to explore other issues, uh, just to name some of them. One in the group in Zurich, we are trying to extract from our sample some from our samples uh, isotopes of helium and neon, which preserve information about. Um, if you had an impact, um, how big were the impactors? How big was our object? And when did this impact occur? Uh, or uh, in an experiment at Argonne Labs, we're actually in a, uh, reproducing the high-pressure conditions for synthetic materials of the same nature and asking, is the quasicrystal stable when you put it under ultra-high pressures? Mm-hmm. So there we can put it under ultra-high pressure and study... If there's tra- how, the tra- how it transforms or doesn't transform as a function of temperature and pressure. So we can see if pressure helped or hindered the formation of quasi-crystals, And it looks like it helps it. Um, and then with the group at Caltech, uh, we, we want to actually reproduce the collisions at yeah. these high velocities and see if we can reproduce some... We think we have some ideas as to what the sequence of events were, but we'll try to actually reproduce it to some degree in the laboratory to see if we can figure out how get metallic aluminum, how you get metallic aluminum together with copper, all in one material. That's a big puzzle. That's the, if you would ask most uh, uh, petrologists, geophysicists, they'd say, that's the part we really don't understand, and we don't yet understand it. We have some clues as to what some of the aspects were, but unless we can really reproduce it in the laboratory, we can't be sure we've got it right, that we've got a good story. So we're trying to do that now. So all these efforts, and more are continuing as we speak.
0: Can you tell me how much time we have left? Because I've got mother, I, I uh, Fifty minutes. Five-zero? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was told, as I, as I mentioned to you by Freeman Dyson, that I yeah. have to talk to you because you have an amazing story. But yeah. I, I thought... He was exaggerating. I mean, that that that's that's a, that's like an Indiana Jones type of story.
1: It turned out to be It's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, you feel really lucky to be in such a story. I have to, I have to say. At some points, you didn't feel so lucky. Oh, like sure. when when you, when you went a certain distance and you got stopped. Sure. But, you know, I got all this point, and now we have to stop. But the fact that we managed to make ourselves get ourselves through to this point. Uh,
0: but, but all the things that it brings in, and then bringing and then winding up with this meteorite, right. I, I wanted to ask you about this particular type of meteorite. You said it was a cV blah 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 c v three carbonaceous chondrite yeah okay so w- I guess one obvious question is um, comparing this particular one with with other ones that are sure. that, that are out there, and you're talking about the impact, maybe the impact had something to do with it and the pressure associated with the impact and so forth mm-hmm. so presumably you've looked at taking samples from. Maybe it's not so easy to do, but but examining some samples of other similar we haven't really done that yet cause because our
1: focus has really been understanding this one sample, right? And and you can see how much work that takes. Sure. But and I've been thinking and discussing with various people how you might survey lots of such materials to look for to look for samples. And uh, so the challenge you have is there are some processes which you you might be able to use. But they'd be destructive. So you you discover that you had found it, but then you wouldn't have anything left. Right. So the question is, um, how do you do? You know, there's, there's still you know maybe still strategies. I'm, I'm exploring strategies for looking at large bulks of material, or I'm hoping that just people looking at their own favorite samples might do the you know might now join in the search and and, and find more of these materials. Right. Um, I'm also interested in looking for, I'm continuing the search for quasicrystals generally. So we have now the first and the second natural quasicrystal. Once you have one, you think you'd have two and three and four, so what are the other ones? And I'm interested in, and one of the reasons why I was originally interested in the search was not just because I wanted to learn something about the stability of quasicrystals, but because I was hoping that rather than use serendipity in the lab to find new quasicrystals, it might be serendipity in nature to find new quasi crystals, sure. and so far the two examples we found are not serendipitous in the sense they actually are ones that we already knew existed in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a complete coincidence. We were using what we knew as information for what things to look for. So, um, uh, if we were searching or looking, you know, if, uh, um, so 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 I want to think about how to also continue the search in a way. That we might find new materials um, that we could then bring back to the laboratory and try to synthesize rather than the uh, right. And that would be a useful way not just to expand the catalog of quasicrystals, but you might find examples which have other physical properties which combined with the quasicrystallinity would make them very interesting right. materials.
0: So I was going to ask about that, but I, I think I'm going to stop. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, I could go on um, virtually indefinitely, um, but I will I will ask you one other one other thing that I promised mm-hmm. to ask, which is completely different. That I should mm-hmm. get since I have you here on, okay. on, on film, um, w- which is given that we've had the occasion to talk quite a bit over the last two days about a wide variety of different subjects, um, and there seems like there are an awful lot of fascinating scientific issues, some of which you've touched upon, but a great many, of course, you have no experience with, yeah. um, and probably some others that you've also touched upon that you haven't told me about. That, uh, <laughs> um, so there's a lot going on in the scientific world. Um, what advice, if any, would you have for young students, a high school student, or an early undergraduate when it comes to pursuing a scientific career?
1: I think, well, I think the most important thing is to get some experience with the research. Um, I think classroom teaching is um, um, very different than the real world of scientific research. In classroom teaching, you're taught things which we understand well enough, usually taught things we understand well enough, and that they can be brought to a level that many people can understand. When you research, you're really on a frontier, you actually don't know which way to turn and which way to go, and uh, you have to decide that for yourself that's extremely exciting. Uh, I think for students who are ex- uh, scientifically inclined, it's extremely exciting. And you can do research at home. Uh, when I was a kid, I, there were certain projects I would work on at home, which you know maybe not have been very important research projects, but that wasn't the point. The point was I was enjoying the sense of discovery. Uh, later on, when, as soon as I had the opportunity, I got to work at, uh, in laboratories um, uh, in my community. So if you, if you have access to that, I think you should try to get to, to that as early in age as possible. Um, uh, there is an issue with that which I'm concerned about, um, which has made it harder for kids to do that, which is, at least in the U.S., which is when I was a kid, I was able to get in the laboratory, I think, at age 12. Um, I had to knock on many doors, but I was able to finally get down doors and get in the laboratory. I wanted to do the same thing, for example, on Princeton campus. There are actually laws in the books, work laws, that say, you can't go into a laboratory until you're age 16, which is pretty late, I think, for getting started. Um, and, um, and, and it's kind of weird. The, 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 the issue has to do with safety, sure. but we let kids at age 12 play football, but we don't let them in the scientific laboratory, e- even under relatively safe conditions, work in the laboratory We keep them from that kind of activity. Um, I, I think that's really bad. And I've been thinking about, you know, how one can change that regulation uh, because I think it's uh, bad for the future of science. You're, you know, you're, we lose people that way. You know, they're being told, this is bad, go do something else. Like football. Like football. <laughs> I don't think it's football. Oh, I but I just think that, you know, I think science is also an exciting activity and getting that um, opportunity for me was really important, um, and uh, especially often you're talking about bright kids. Many of them are bored in school, and then if they have the opportunity to do this kind of activity, it makes it all relevant.
0: Sure, and they so can I think it their enthusiasm. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I think um, somehow better interfaces between schools and research labs, research opportunities, and changing these regulations, um, I think is uh, would be, is important for the
0: future of, of young scientists. And uh, picking up on your comment about some of them being bored in school, is there any advice you might give to a high school teacher or to a middle school teacher in terms of how to improve the situation, how to keep the kids a little bit more stimulated? Well, um, I think it I think it's a challenge for teachers.
1: I mean, first of all, it's important that but the teachers of these students are, are not the type of teachers who feel um, discomfort if they don't know something. So, I mean, so, so some teachers you know, have the point of view, or feel that they're supposed to be the experts and they're supposed to know everything. And so when you get these very bright kids coming at you, questioning, um, they may react badly because it feels like, they feel like their authority is being challenged. Whereas um, I think a healthier attitude is to say, uh, it 's perfectly okay to say you don 't know I, I do that all the time um, and and that 's a good question, and we ought to pursue it and you know and allow some freedom uh, encourage encourage students to ask the questions and give a lot of positive reinforcement for the questions, but more than that follow through it shouldn 't just be a question or oh, that 's an interesting question let 's pursue it let 's figure out how to pursue it let 's um, how we might answer that question also. Um, you're not living in a. Um, you living on an island, you know. Uh, especially with the internet, uh, you know. If you have a question about something, go find the expert in it. Um, when I was uh, a student, um, I had a project. the first project I worked on was a math project, and it turned out it was written by someone I didn't know, but he was. It turns out to be a famous mathematician. I remember writing to him about. You know, little my little little calculation as an elementary school student, I was doing, got a wonderful letter back from him, um, which was very supportive, but also and it helped me, you know, uh, work out something, something I was doing. You have to understand that people that in, in this world are willing to help in this way, uh, are willing to support in this way, and so take advantage of that fact to, you know, help those students. See the bigger world, interact with the larger world, and you never never know where it's going to lead. There are all kinds of opportunities in this country for uh, bright young kids to spend summers and various kinds of camps or research opportunities that are available. Uh, some people know about them, but many people don't know about them, and and so I think these these teachers should have some responsibility of understanding what the opportunities are for those bright young students. And uh, the nice thing about those activities, not only do they have the research opportunities or Sometimes it's advanced class opportunities, but they also are meeting other kids of similar types. And very often, especially in smaller schools, these very bright kids feel socially uncomfortable or feel socially different and isolated, and then they discover, oh, I'm not alone. There's other kids out there, and uh, I know my kids were involved in such activities like that, and uh, they've made lifelong friends that they continue to interact with. From those, uh, from those activities. Um, and so I think, there's lots, I think there's lots that can be done and not with much difficulty these days. You know, uh, When I was a kid it was very important to live exactly in the community where the lab was. Nowadays there are things you can do, you can work with satellite data, you can work with data that everyone has access to and interact with the scientists who's on the other side of the world on a project. There's many things you can do. Uh, so I think being creative about the use of those resources is the best thing. Right.
0: Thanks a lot, Paul. Sure. It's really fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual e-book and as part of the e-book and paperback Conversations About Physics, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Nima Arkani-Hamid, Arthur Eckert, Tony Leggett and David Pollitzer. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.